0: I invite you to give your warmest welcome to Bo Stern. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, man. It's so good to be here, you guys. I just, I feel like I've, I've spent a lot of time in this very room over the last two days, and I'm just about ready to bring in my sleeping bag and call it home. So good. Um, that was a lovely introduction, but Jerry got one thing wrong. My name is not actually Bo Stern. My name is Bonita Stern. And sometimes I say the NITA was silent because I don't like people to say it. Um, My parents named you that. And a lot of people will say, oh, it's because it's the Spanish word for beautiful. But actually, they had no idea what any Spanish word for anything was. They just picked it because they liked it. And my sisters couldn't say it. I had two big sisters who were little at the time. And they couldn't say bonita. So they just never called me that ever in my life. So they just lopped it off. And I ended up beau. Except on my license and my, you know, tax returns and stuff. I'm Bonita still. And so whenever I get a phone call for Bonita Stern, I know it's probably like the government. Like I'm in trouble. (laughs) And so it's never, ever good news. Or someone who knows me. I am known by a certain name by some people and another name by other people, depending on what they know of me. And that's really true of a lot of words. Like we use different words to describe different elements of the same thing. So like the Inuits have 100 words for snow. I, in Bend, we have 100 words about snow. <laughs> now, I don't want to say I'm here because I won't get asked back. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a word in German that describes the weight you gain after a breakup. It literally translates grief bacon so that's a cool word. You can use that if you need that. Um, I hope you won't need that. <laughs> I really do. But it's funny because uh, in my church, we've been studying the uh, letters of John. And I love John, one of my favorite writers, uh, biblical writers. And, and um, so in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John talks about primarily two things. He talks about love and he talks about sin. And when he talks about love, he uses a word that really wasn't found in any contemporary documents to the Bible. There are no ancient texts that use the word agape. And so what historians believe is that the word agape was developed by Christians to describe something they were seeing that they hadn't seen before. This is like a different thing. This is a different kind of love. This is a whole different bow. This is a whole different situation. And the word is agape, and it's different um, from the other words in Greek, one which means a romantic, sexual kind of love and one which means a friendship kind of love. This one means a protective kind of love. This is a love that lays its life down. How much protection? The way Jesus protected our future by laying his whole life down, his dignity, his ministry, his everything, laying it down for us. So agape is that word that was cultivated and created inside of community that was living it out and going, what is this? What does this look like? This is the word that Jesus used when he said, this is how they're going to know that you're followers of Jesus. And so today the message... As I think, the end of your marriage series, unless you want to carry that into Easter, which would be a cool trick. Um, <laughs> and I, if you aren't married today, i I bless you. I'm so glad you're here because I am one of you. I am widowed, I am also single. and um, so just know that I have you in my heart, and this doesn't disclude you, disclude this doesn't exclude you. This is about loving well. We want to talk about how we love well because if it's the if it's the watermark for a follower of Jesus Christ because John says over and over again, this is how we're going to know. This is, this, the one who loves is the one who walks in the way of Jesus, and the one who doesn't, doesn't. There's no other watermark. It's not a recitation of the books of the Bible, even if you learn the song. It's not doctrinal tenets. It's not how well you, you know show up and punch the clock and do the program at church. It's not that. The way they know we're followers of Jesus Christ is the way we agape one another. And the way that we know a marriage is healthy and thriving, even in sickness and in health is the way we agape one another. And so this is my favorite verse about marriage and it's not actually about marriage at all but it's out of 1 John 3. And it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? dear children, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. So when we get married, we say the words. We say the vows. We say for richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and in health. And then marriage is the proving ground for the words. Marriage is where the action of agape takes place. And, and I think that marriage is probably the greatest, for one thing, I think it's the most unforgiving full-length mirror ever. But it also is one of the greatest ways, it gives us the most chances to become like Jesus. And But every chance is a choice. We always have a choice to make when we have a chance. And so taking the chance to love well in sickness and in health is a really big choice. In fact, it's like a trillion little choices. Um, You say the words, and then you live it out. And so my story is that I went to Bible college at uh, 16. I was super mature, though. Don't even worry. I I will say that after me, they changed the rule, and you couldn't go there at 16 anymore. So I don't know. I think they figured there wasn't going to be any getting better than that. Um, So... I I went just because my parents didn't want me to go to to regular college right away I wanted to be a lawyer and they didn't want me to be and they said just do a year at Bible college and then you know you can do what you want So I did a year, and I was like, I'm just going to kill time until I get to go to a real school. And I remember telling them, Bible college is like VBS with tuition, and that's not nice. And and so then I went, and I did my first word study, and I fell in love with the Word of God. I fell in love, and I said, I want to give my life to this, and I've been a theology major ever since. Still haven't graduated. Still a theology major. Um, And then I also fell in love with Steve Stern. I... I didn't. I actually hated Steve Stern. I met him, and we had hate at first sight, and we were just like arch enemies for a while. And then, you know, it got to be year two, and time's ticking, and you got to get that ring. And so I was like, okay. (laughs) I really did fall in love with him. I did. He was awesome then. (laughs) He um, got kicked out of Bible college, actually, and took a semester to consider his ways, and came back a changed man. And I was like, okay, I'll take him. And so, We got married in 1985, back when people really knew how to dress. And I know, it's like the era of flash dance. It was awesome. And... um it was, uh, we started life in Gresham. We bought our first house for $63,000. Um, it might be worth that today. I'm not even sure. <laughs> um, but we started out life just like everyone else does. And then we started having babies. And then we had three babies. And we quit having babies. And then we had one more baby. And we just developed this the, the same kind of life. It was wonderful and lovely and terrible and awful and contentious and beautiful and perfect and all the things. It was all the things that a relationship could be. We did regularly things like coffee on the deck and Saturday morning dates to Costco. I'm sure that he loved those most of all. And um, all of the things that you do and what makes up a life in a marriage and with our kids. If you have that picture of our family, you can throw it up there. Um, but Oh that's that's my beloved and that's my family and um we cut off one son-in-law cuz we're not speaking to him no he we, I just couldn't screenshot very well <laughs> that's my grandson gray um and so we had three girls and a boy and and life was was good and um then one <clears throat> Day Steve came home from golfing, and I don't know if you're the kind of person that can judge your golf swing by your health, like you can tell how healthy you are by how far you he could. And in fact, this is Master's weekend. It was his favorite weekend of the year. And um, he came home and he said, "Bo, my golf swing is forty yards short. Something is really wrong with me. Never had a physical problem in the world. He always just a strapping guy At that point, he was 6'3", 220. And we went to a doctor and got misdiagnosed a few times, and then one day in September of 2010, we sat in a doctor's office and uh, we didn't get an answer that day, but all I can tell you is that Goliath walked in. I felt him. I felt him walk in and challenge us to the fight of our lives. Five months later, after lots of testing, after lots of actually praying that he had cancer and that it wasn't what we feared, we found out that it was what we feared. It was ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and um, our lives changed for good, We, but we... We took our daughter and son-in-law with us to that appointment. And on the way home, we stopped at a restaurant and we raised our glasses to life. And my husband said, well, we've just been called to the ALS community. That's what we're going to do. This is our ticket into a mission field we couldn't have gotten into otherwise. And he lived out the days of his life with so much strength. I wouldn't actually call him a hero before, but he was in that four years. And so we we, we embarked on this really difficult, really beautiful adventure of figuring out how to walk Steve home. We prayed for healing, just know that, but we also had a lot to deal with as as things progressed for him. ALS is a disease that steals all your muscles and eventually leaves only your eyes and brain functioning, takes your ability to speak and swallow. And so we started into this thing, and I remember the first day that he couldn't make it up the stairs and we had to put a stair machine in. I remember the day the wheelchair showed up. Um, he let it sit in the garage for three months before he'd get in it. Um, I remember the day he said, it's time to quit driving. I remember the day he sent his golf clubs to Uganda to a missionary because he knew he couldn't golf anymore. It was like dying piece by piece, letting go of things that he loved. And, um, I remember the time when he said, I want to take you out for Valentine's dinner, but you're going to have to feed me Um, because his arms didn't work anymore. And it takes a really strong man to let his wife feed him in a restaurant in a small town where everybody is watching your life. And um, he lived on purpose. He had tons of men come in and just talk with him, and he'd listen to them, and and he worked hard to be a great dad and a great friend, and he lived on purpose with purpose during that season, and I couldn't be prouder or more honored to have been the one that cared for him, but I will tell you that caring for him was the biggest challenge of my life. I don't go near medical things. I am not that girl. He was always the guy who cleaned up the kid throw up. I am just, I just am not. And I went in thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And so one of the things that happens with ALS patients is they can't swallow and they choke on everything. And eventually he had to get a feeding tube to take all his nutrition through. And that, you know, takes away the fear of choking on Food, but the problem is your body still produces saliva. Did you know your body produces two liters of saliva a day and and, and you it produces it all night too, and you just swallow it you don 't even know that you 're saving your own life all, you are here today, and you are a miracle. Good job. you did it. You swallowed your way through the night and you 're great but um, Steve's wouldn 't do that, so I had to get him up and suction it out you can 't suction him laying down. I had to get him up in a wheelchair, do all the things it was six, seven times a night having to do this and we didn't get sleep for three years. I'm, and I, that's not hyperbole. It was constantly, um, it was so many things. It was, it was all the things that as he would lose an ability, I would pick up that ability and have to start becoming that part of his body that he had lost. And it was exhausting and excruciatingly painful. And, um, it was a hard time, but it was a it was a beautiful time to live out the vows. Um, yeah, and so uh, <clears throat> about oh we had a he we had a dance a, f- a fancy dance for ALS to raise money for ALS and and we went and he was in a wheelchair and he hadn't walked on his own for a long time and um, a slow st- song started playing and I went by his wheelchair and I started kind of dancing with him near the wheelchair. And do you have that picture? And uh, he, maybe it didn't go, he struggled out of his wheelchair to dance with me. Um, And that's just the nature of who he was. And I just wanted you to understand. I'm not trying to make you cry. I just want you to understand his life and how he was. And um, so in November of 2014, he went on hospice. And the doctor gave him two months to live And my daughter and son-in-law, all of us got gathered for Thanksgiving. And my son-in-law prayed the prayer over the meal and he prayed, Thank you, God, for our friends and our family and for the baby growing inside of Whitney right now. And my husband looked at Whitney and he said, When are you due? And she said, July. And he said, Well, that's my new goal then. And we thought, oh, there's no way. He's not going to make it to Christmas. There's no way. And then July 6th comes along, and Phineas Brave is born, Whitney's son, our second grandson. And Whitney and Corey were pushing the hospital staff, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get this baby to his grandpa. We've got to go. And finally, they get out, and they drive to our house, and they put that baby in Steve's arms. Do you have that photo? They put that baby in Steve's arms, and Phineas met Steve. And they just got to high five on their way through. One man of God, so helpless. And one little man of God, so helpless. But so connected. And it was a Simeon moment, one of the most beautiful moments in my life. Um, and 12 days later, Steve woke up and he had had a really really terrible week. And we knew this, the end is getting near. And uh, my pastor came over to pray for him. And at some point my pastor asked him, Steve, who's waiting? Is it you or is it heaven? And Steve said, well, I'm really grateful that Steve did not lose his whole ability to speak. I'm really, really grateful about that. I had a whole team of women that just prayed for that the whole time. Um, And so <laughs> he said, who's waiting? And Steve said, well, Josiah, who's our only son, and he was 15 at the time. Josiah has to take his driver's ed test, and I don't want him to be worried about me. And Tess, our, second, our third daughter, is on a road trip, and it's not polite to leave while someone you love is gone. And so even in his last minutes of life, he was still being a great dad from a wheelchair. He had no muscle. He had no anything to give them except that, his presence. And he gave it. And again, I'm so proud of him. And the next day, he went into distress, and his caregiver called me over. And, and after four years of saving him, saving his life in so many crisis situations, I heard the Holy Spirit say, help him home. Just help him home. So I got up close to his ear and I began to tell him all the things he had done and been and how, what a beautiful life he had lived and how much we loved him. And I didn't even say we would miss him because I was afraid it would make him fight to stay. But I told him about a million times, you are about to get the best meal of your life because it had been 20 months since he had tasted food. And then at 11.52, with Beauty for Ashes playing in the background, he flew away home. And I fell at his feet in his wheelchair, and I sobbed out my gratitude to Jesus for the life of Steve Stern. And at that moment, I could see in my mind's eye that Steve was doing exactly the same thing, sobbing out his gratitude to Jesus for his life. And then I got to get some sleep, I entered into a season that is still odd for me to say that I'm a widow. Um, I was 49 at the time. And I had a chance to reflect on what it looked like to be married to someone who was so profoundly disabled after never having seen it coming. And so when Ann asked me about speaking this message, I thought, ooh, that's going to be rough, but I want to do it. I really want to do it. And mostly I want to do it because I believe in marriage. I especially believe in gospel-driven marriages. And I believe that we say the vows and the... It's, that's loving in word and it matters. It really matters. But walking those vows out when the pressure's on is what makes all the difference between marriages that go the distance. And by distance, I mean we, we, we wreak eternal impact in our world. We do something with our marriage that is going to outlive and outlast us. Steve Stern would be so proud of the fact that our marriage is today being a gift to people. And so how do we do it? How do we love well when we're in a season in our marriage where one or both of the spouses is dealing with chronic or, or life-threatening illness or stomach flu? You know, those are the hard times. It, the decisions we make in sickness are hard. And how do we deal with it when we're living with a spouse who is emotionally sick? Because it's just as difficult but more invisible. And it's really hard. And so all I want to give... I don't have a super theological message today. I just want to give you some things that I've learned from Jesus as I've gone. I want to tell you a couple of ways that I think you can help care for the person you love when they're sick. And I want to tell you three things I learned from Jesus throughout living out the vows. Um, A study published in Cancer Journal... Um, showed that, and this was recently done and it was groundbreaking when the results came out, that uh, in marriages that have a chronic or terminal illness, a a serious health crisis is responsible for a much higher divorce rate, 21% higher. But it's interesting because when they looked at it next to a control group, they found that when the, when the sick person is the wife, or when the sick person is the husband, they divorce only 3% of the time versus 12% in a regular marriage. But when the sick person is the wife, they divorce 21% of the time. And so there is a real difference in the way women stick in marriages that are sick and the way men stick in marriages that are sick. And researchers are still trying to figure that out. And I don't know the answer either. I do know it's not as simple as men aren't as cool as women. It's really not. There's a lot to it. There's a lot about men don't feel qualified to be caregivers and they feel inadequate in that role and women would rather be cared for by their family. And There's a lot there. But the bottom line is the number one thing you can do if someone in the marriage is sick is stay. That's the number one thing. And that is not a sexy word. But stay. There were plenty of times... Where I, I looked out in my lawn and thought, there's a whole world out there. I could, I could, there's stuff out there. I could go. There, it wouldn't be so confining. There would be things that I could do. But the one thing sometimes that kept me, other than my love for God and my love for Steve Stern, was the awareness that I was going to have to sleep with my own self after he was gone. And I would have to live with the choices that I made. And so, stay. Simple, Not easy. But it's a really big word in how we take care of someone we love. Um, when a spouse is sick emotionally, depression and anxiety is at an all-time high in our world. We are seeing diagnosis of, of emotional health issues triple the rate of 1987. And so almost every marriage is going to deal with something from it. And these are such a big deal. When we get soul sick, when we have a soul wound or something that's unhealed, um, and, and it causes an emotional sickness. You can feel just as helpless as caring for someone who's physically ill. And it can be just as debilitating. But like I said, it's invisible. So you don't get the same amount of sympathy and support from the outside world. I mean, I got all kinds of casseroles dropped at my door. But I haven't heard about a lot of people doing that for spouses who are depressed. So uh, most marriages disintegrate actually over soul sickness, not over body sickness. Emotional issues create things like unfaithfulness and affairs, financial issues, fear and insecurity, family insecurity, depression, procrastination, unhealthy addictions. And ultimately, emotional sickness can lead to physical sickness, and it creates barriers in intimacy. So how do we fight for spouses? Other than stay, how do we fight for spouses who are struggling physically physically or emotionally? When sickness comes into our marriage, a couple of things. One thing is pray. Let's not underestimate the power of prayer in our relationships. It is so, so important. And there were times when I was caring for Steve, that I thought I, can, I, don't, I could have no energy to pray. And so I would just fall into bed and, and just say, thanks for the day and help me tomorrow. Help me to face it tomorrow. And I had, in those moments, people who I knew were praying for me. Call in the troops. If you need prayer for support, call in the troops. If you need prayer for healing, call in the troops. Get people who can surround you. If you don't even believe in the power of prayer because you're so... Uh, broken down right now, perfect. Call in someone who does. They can pray for you. That's enough faith. Enough faith to say, I don't believe, but I believe enough to believe someone does believe. Do it. Call in someone who can help you pray. The second one is find help, find resources, connect with a counselor, connect with a book, connect with something that you can start to say, okay, how do we map a course forward? Even if the course forward doesn't look like you're going to get out of it. Like that was how I was there. Was, I knew there was no way I could do well enough to steer Steve out of ALS. There was no solving it, but there was a way to get him and our family through in a way that was sustainable. And so get help and resources. If you're dealing with emotional unhealth inside of your marriage or your spouse is dealing with it, I really recommend the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. That's been really helpful in my life. I recommend counseling. I recommend all the things you can find. Get some help. And then the third one is commit to agape you are the container for the agape love of Jesus poured out for your spouse. You are, you're not the only one. It's not all up to you. But you are the primary one. You are person one. You are the one that God has trusted to be the hands and feet of his agape love to protect them. Protect them with your words. Protect them with your actions. And here's the thing. If you are the sick one in the marriage, you are called to do the same thing. You are called to protect the one you love. And I know when you're sick, it's so hard to use nice words. I know it's, I've had four babies. I'm telling you, it is so hard to be kind. It is so hard. It's easy to just think none of that counts when I'm going through a hard thing but you are called to agape on both sides of this equation and you are called to it in health because just as many marriages shipwreck in success as they do in sick times so we are called to live out this vow no matter what comes in the vow is not circumstantial that's what makes it a vow so commit to agape number four is encourage him or her to move a little I mean, and I know this is a weird one, but studies show all kinds of research has been done on this. Studies show that physical exercise or movement, working out, taking a long walk is as effective as counseling and drugs in, in anxiety and depression. As effective. Take a walk together. Get out, ride some bikes together. It's the last thing you want to do when you're feeling anxious or depressed, but the best thing you could do for yourself. Help your spouse keep moving. There's a study that shows that couch potatoes who fidget are more emotionally healthy than couch potatoes who do not. It is... Powerful. Why didn't Jesus tell us to do it? Because he was already doing it. He walked 3,000 miles in his ministry. It was a part of their life. They don't even need to tell people, get out there and move. It's just part of their life. We have to tell ourselves, put down the cell phone, get out and move. It's really, really important. Studies also show that the positive effects you get from exercise when you're depressed or anxious last longer than medication or counseling. And I'm not degrading medication or counseling, but I'm saying, put movement into it it's really important and the last one is kind of weird too it's just remember Noah um, I've never preached out of Noah before I, uh, I think it's kind of a discouraging story I, I mean I don't love it I, everyone dies pretty much and I can't I can't find a lot of personal application I can't find myself in that story because I wouldn't be Noah I would never build an ark there's no way I'd be like nope let's just all we're gonna just drown with it I'm not doing that I wouldn't live with those animals that long I wouldn't be Mrs. Noah because I don't want to go with him into that ark and so there's not it's not happening um but finally one day I found myself in the story um and it's Noah, they've been in the ark like uh, so, so long. Just, it's just a nightmare situation. It's got to smell badly in there and they're floating and everyone they love outside of the ark is dead. I mean, it's bad. And so he sends a dove out and the dove doesn't come back with anything. And then he sends the dove out again and the dove come back, comes back with a scrap of a leaf from an olive tree. And you know what the dove doesn't come back with? The dove doesn't come back with a picture of the fully built mansion waiting for Noah to move into seaside. It's just a scrap of evidence that life is out there. And that's what I want to be. I want to be someone who can bring to people who are dying in discouragement the evidence that life is still out there. I wanted to be that for my husband, and I did it imperfectly. I will tell you. I could tell you story after story, but I think that's all we need to commit to. I won't bring you the whole picture. I'm not in charge of healing you. I'm not in charge of fixing you. I'm not in charge of making everything set up circumstantially so that you can fix yourself. I am only here to show you life is still out there. Life exists, and there is a way forward. And so commit to that with the people you love. Whether you're married or single or somewhere in between, commit to that in general, that you're going to be a life bringer, that you're going to be someone who shows other people the proof of life. That's the best thing I think we could do for each other. So we are for each other in sickness and we are for each other in health. Three things that I learned from God, about God in the middle of healthy and sick seasons of marriage. And we had both of them. We had all kinds of healthy seasons and we had all kinds of sick ones. The first thing is just that God can be trusted. His character is good. So many people, I've heard so many stories now that I've, I've been in this position in my life. People tell me their stories of loss and some of them are are just drowning in bitterness and sorrow and can't get out of it, and others are thriving and doing amazingly well, and they're living out of the edge of the wild, and they're fantastic. And the primary difference, the number one thing, is not the circumstances they live through, not how tragic they were, not the counselor they have, not the The number one difference in whether someone thrives after sorrow or survives is whether or not they could trust the character of God. The number one thing. That's why I wrote the book Ruthless. It takes you through 30 days all in the character of God. Every day we look at a different aspect of his nature that is immutable. It does not change. And so um, trust. I learned to trust that he is good. And then I learned that he's been to every minute we'll ever face. I... Uh, the day after Steve's diagnosis, I I was going to go to work and my boss called and said, you're not coming to work. And I was like, oh no, I'm fine. I'm doing, I'm really doing fine. I mean, I'm trusting God. I'm doing fine. I was in this weird kind of shock euphoria. I, I discovered that I don't hate shock. I just hate when it wears off. That's the worst thing is when shock wears off, you're like, oh shoot, this is what I'm supposed to be feeling. Um, so sure enough, about 10 o'clock that morning, shock wore off and I landed on my face in my office floor at home and I just was pouring out to Jesus, saying, "I am so afraid. I am not the girl for this job. You got the wrong girl. This can't be happening. All of those things. How am I going to make it? My, how are my kids going to make it? How am I going to put four kids through college? What's going to go happen?" And in the middle of that, through the fray of it, I just kept hearing the words, "Every minute, every minute, every minute, every minute." And I was like, "What does that even mean?" And then I got up with my computer and I started writing, and I wrote. I've been to every minute you will ever face, and I've made provision there. You won't see it now, but you'll see it when you get there. And I can tell you four years after my husband died now that I can look back on every moment that I experienced and see the fingerprints of God all over it. On the day we found out he had disability insurance and we didn't think he did. I mean... In a million ways, on a million days, on a day when someone parked a wheelchair van in our driveway and said, it's yours, oh, no, we would do want $5. I mean, God was just there in every minute. He was there, and he was doing the things that only God can do. And I learned that about him in that time. I also learned that his love is the fuel for the stuff I never thought I could do. And if his love isn't the fuel, then I still can't do him. I couldn't do it on my own. We've got to draw from the agape of God that is holding us while we hold someone else. That pours into us so that we can pour into someone else. The agape of God is good for us. He already laid his life down for us to have what we need. And it's the most beautiful thing. And experiencing the vows lived out under pressure is like watching a diamond be born. And even though I don't have my beloved to share that with now, I have so much beauty from that season, so more than my arms can hold, so much beauty. My kids love God. They're solid. They're settled. Life is good in sickness and in health. And so on my 30th anniversary, um, do you know what the gift is for year 30? It's pearls. And it was funny because I had always likened our marriage to the parable of the pearl hidden in the, the The pearl that the guy finds and hides because it's a pearl of great price. And Steve and I used to say to each other, there's a lot of field in you, but there's a pearl there somewhere. (laughs) The field, it's everywhere, man. But there's a pearl. We're digging. And my husband, though he was on hospice, completely, man, take a little note here. Completely paralyzed, managed to give me a string of pearls for our 30th anniversary. Um, you can you can do it, you can figure it out. You can get your, gift, your wife the perfect gift. Um, and on that day, I wrote a letter to myself on a day when I felt like I was dying myself. Um, I wrote this letter to my 1985 Cindy Lauper hair self on the day of my wedding. And I want to read it to you as we close. Dear very, very young Beau, you're about to walk down the aisle and marry the love of your life. You will say vows that are made of fancy words like protect and honor and troth. Pretend you know what it means. You will promise to love Steve. He will promise to love you. You will promise to take care of him. He will promise to take care of you. In your heart, you will feel love beyond all sense of reason, and you will be ready to sacrifice anything for him, anything. Then the laundry will pile up. And he'll want to go golfing when you want to have a long talk about a subject that is only interesting to you. And that's when you'll start to build some bargains into your relationship, and they will sound almost vow-like in their virtue. You will tell him he can go golfing on Saturday if he will also clean the garage on Friday. (laughs) I don't know that he ever did. I'll just tell you you that. He's not here to defend himself, so I get to say what I want. Um, You'll agree to fold his socks if he agrees to wash your car. You'll make deals, and he'll make deals, and before you know it, you'll be living in a world that is fair and square and even Steven. You'll learn to expect all the emotional ledgers to be balanced with exactly the right ratios of give and take. But eventually, your fear will get the best of you, and you'll have no courage to bring into this fight. Steve will find that all the chips have been moved to his side of the table as he works triple time to assure you that you are loved and safe. It will make him weary, but don't worry. He'll handle it like the champ you only suspect he is now. He'll love you fiercely and fight for your freedom, and you will never feel for a moment that he regrets choosing you. Never for a moment. His love will help you find what you need to become brave like you've never imagined you could be, and that newfound courage, hold on to it with both hands. Because, sister, the future you see as you peer through your wedding veil is going to take a turn you cannot possibly see coming. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. The day will come when you will be all the muscle in this marriage. A dark day will come when you will steady his shaking hand as you sit in a hospital waiting room. You will button his shirt and help him shave. You will do the driving and the lifting and the working, but he will still be brave enough for both of you. Not going to lie, some moments you'll feel like you'll buckle beneath the weight, but you won't, and neither will he. Because it turns out the vows aren't perfect and they aren't even Stephen, but they are strong and real. They are as strong as you're willing to live them and as strong as the God who heard you say them. One day you'll see a young, healthy couple make their promises dressed in white. You will think about how they have all their days ahead of them and your heart will do a little squeeze because you remember that very moment in your life when the future stretched out so wide. But here's the thing, you won't envy them because you'll know what you have is proven and true. It's made of long nights and hard fights and a lot of giving when it seemed there was nothing more to give. In a world that is more comfortable with quitting than sticking, you will discover that the truest joy is not found in the shadows, but out in the deep. So go say your vows, eat the cake, love your life. You will never regret this choice, but you might regret that dress. Jesus, we thank you for vows that are true and real. We thank you that your son hung on the cross and said to us, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and that you stayed and you keep staying and you keep fulfilling your end of the deal. Even when we fail, we thank you for that most of all. And we ask you, God, that that kind of agape, that kind of goodness would fill our hearts toward our people. No matter who those people are, would you fill us with the kind of agape love that protects greatly, that loves greatly, that lays down our lives and our will and our need to be first and our need to be right, that lays all the things down in order to bring your goodness to a world that is longing for it. When we sing, the goodness of God is running after me, it runs after me in the form often of people who love so well, who love so strong, who stick so close. And so, God, we thank you for those people in our lives today. And we ask that you would cause us to become that kind of people, that kind of people that loves without measure, that doesn't love by the rules. God, would you just give us a heart? for the marriages here today that are struggling through sickness, I ask that you would be the God of all comfort and grace and that you would be the great, great physician, that you would come into homes, that you would walk through hallways, that you would visit bedrooms, that you would visit hearts, and that you would bring answers that we cannot possibly develop on our own. God, would you come and do superhuman things in the marriages of this house? I pray for every marriage that is in the season of health and is taking it for granted or is coasting or is in a place where they're not investing in one another spiritually God, I pray that you would come and you would fill them with your passion and the fuel of your love and a fuel for your heart and your house. God, I pray that our homes would be a reflection of who you are, that the goodness of God would pour out through our lives, into our children, into our neighborhoods, and out into the streets because you are just that good. Thank you for chasing us down. We love you. And we glorify you because you're only good and only true and only beautiful. In your name we pray. Amen.